0: If you're the advocate for the audience, you understand who your audience is. Uh, And that's why there's some shows on TV that are successful, some are not. I mean, it's it's all over the board, Uh, successes and not. And it's not just TV shows. Look at products. Look at how uh, a lawyer comes off with a client or with a jury or however you're negotiating. Who is your audience? Your audience might be the one person sitting across from you.
1: My first guest is Mr. Fred Ashman. Fred is a leading director, producer, and writer. And uh, he's incredibly well known um, in his field. He's got over 100 um, awards that he's received. He's a principal in the San Diego film community. And I'm very delighted to have Fred on. So Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Cameron. Thank you. So Fred, um, I, the focus of our podcast, because it's so much about entrepreneurship, I want to talk a little bit about your own journey. Um, you know, very few people have had your kind of success. I mean, you were not even 30 years old. while well, you formed your corporation, um, you a multi-million dollar corporation. You have represented some of the leading corporations in the entire world yourself. Um, and I just wanted to know, from the beginning of your journey, from where you started, First of all, what made you think that you could do it? And what gave you the idea that to start your own company?
0: Well, a couple of things. I, I started very young. And uh, I was in junior high school. And we had an aptitude test. Well, that's what do you want to be when you grow up test. Right. And uh, they had all these questions. But it, I, it just was clear to me that I wanted to. My dad was an engineer, a uh, design type engineer. Uh, and I wanted to be an audio engineer. That was fascinating to me. I was already playing trumpet, so I wanted to be a professional trumpet player. I loved TV, and even as a kid, I had my parents take me to the local radio and TV stations just to see how they did it. I wanted My big goal was to be a TV director. And then I always had a fascination with airplanes. My uncle, Bob, uh, flew a, an Aero Commander, uh, which is a twin engine uh, a corporate airplane. And he let me sit in it when I was an eight-year-old and I had to bug from then on. So I wanted to be a pilot. Uh, and I, as How I, old
1: were you when you wanted to be a pilot first?
0: 13. Wow. Oh, eight years old. From eight years <laughs> old on. When I sat in that, he let me sit in the cockpit and touch the wheel in the hangar. That was it. I was, oh, this has got to be cool. <laughs> and my dad would take me out. and We would watch the airplanes come and land at the airport sometimes. And so that was all part of it. So I wanted all of those things. And I just kept up with it. And by the time I was in uh, high school, I was playing trumpet. I'd been playing since third grade. I was playing really a college level. And by the time I left high school, I was uh, playing uh, semi-professionally. And by the time I was 18, 19, 20, I was playing professionally with my own band. We were playing at Disneyland on the main stage, rock. And we actually opened one concert for Stevie Wonder. We did had a record contract, so on and so forth. But I also at the same time was pursuing the, uh, the directing piece of it and the audio piece of it. So when I was just out of uh, high school and into college, I started working with an AV company that had a big audio department and we're doing sound for the rock shows. So I ended up mixing sound for uh, Moody Blues, Three Dog Night, Steppenwolf, Can't Heat, uh, even the Count Basie Band. Uh, in concerts. So I was doing the the audio part of it as an engineer. And that was achieved. When I was 18, I directed my first commercial television show through a local TV station. And it was a junior achievement program. You had to come up with the idea. You had to write it. You had to sell it. And then you had to put it on the air and we use their professional staff with the cameras and the tech. Good work. I mean, essentially high school students and um, we put on a live show with a live band and live music because i was already into the music scene enough that i had pros and uh carl weathers who became apollo creed was actually uh, in in my senior college project sang and did uh we did a music show and he he sang get ready uh with with a band it was that's how it got started all that so as i got out of college I was already really pushing to get into the uh, video side of it and through the music, uh, because we had a recording contract, the guy who owned the recording company's brother was a guy named Nick Vanoff. And Nick Vanoff was the executive producer of the old Hollywood Palace show and then the Sunny Chair show and a whole lot of other things. And I got run of the place. So I got Nick to like what I was doing. I was starting to work in... Uh, if you will, corporate production, because I was doing a lot of corporate AV through that AV company. So I became familiar with that marketplace.
1: How old were you, Fred, um, at this time? Uh, 22. Wow! So you've done all this by the time you were 22? Oh, yeah. And that's
0: that's when I started the company. And uh, I was in business for a very short period of time and had a few clients. I already had Western Airlines and, and some others. And uh, uh, it was the Carter years and the economy, I, re, as I recall the interest rates were up at 18% on your house. You could put your house on a credit card, essentially. That's right. My house. So that collapsed pretty much the economy and, and all of my business, all four of my accounts canceled all their work. And one of those accounts actually said, well, we want to keep you going because we like what you're doing. And it wasn't that much money so they uh, uh bought my company from me for $13,000 which was the exact amount of my small business loan wow. <laughs> in the 70s and I became uh, their youngest managing director of the subsidiary and, and over the next four years used that to build it up to where they were less than two percent of my business and we grew exponentially uh with just very little capital but we we, I got to continue to work and, and get a salary when everything was terrible because I had no real backing. And um, in, within five years, it was about four and a half years, uh, they were in financial difficulty, the parent company. And uh, I did a leverage buyout. And the terms were incredibly good because they were having them not as a client anymore if they went under and they finally did. Um, right. meant nothing. Because I still now I had all these clients, and they actually liked me, so they gave me their loss carry forwards. So for the first couple of years that I was in the high growth area, I didn't have to pay any taxes because it was part of the loss carry forwards that came with the uh, leverage buyout. So and, it was very interesting. About
1: when? How many years into it was this, Fred? Um, after the your first company?
0: Oh, uh, this was uh, when I was about 24, 25 years old.
1: Wow. So you were doing leveraged buyouts by the time you were 24, probably before people had heard of leveraged buyouts because that well, <laughs> term I didn't come out until the 80s. Yeah,
0: the chairman of the company taught me a really good lesson that stayed with me and it really paid off later because uh, we were negotiating some things. And he said, remember, when you're negotiating a deal, it's only good and it's only long term. If you can stand up, walk to the other side of the table, sit down and say, this is fair. So if you can take yourself out of your personal position and get rid of greed and and just, you know, what's fair? What's fair for me? Wait a minute, what's fair for him? If I was him, would I take this or would I not? And if you make that kind of deal, that's the basis for long-term relationships in business. And what we built was long-term relationships with companies like American Airlines. NCR, 35 years in a row, 36 years in a row for their biggest, most expensive, and most important um, video, film, and event product that they did, uh, and quite a few others too. Pitney Bowes, 25 years, uh, um, lots of lots of big companies all over the world. The Sony Global Dealer Meeting in Japan. We we started with a blank page and created the whole thing. We wrote it. We put it together. We did the videos. Uh, And then we went to uh, Tokyo and staged it with the chairman of Sony Global. That kind of work for all these big companies, literally all over the world. But it was all based on that whole premise of when you're making a deal, you can sit on either side of the table.
1: So you had a a business mind, I think it's fair to say, from a young age. Um, I'm. Yeah, because I started when I was managing the band, our, mm-hmm. our little rock band, and, and so you managed the band, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, not at first, but uh, when the guy who was the leader of the first band I joined left and went off to college, uh, then I started. I took it over, and I'm still just a senior in high school, mm-hmm. but I had to handle the checks and handle the budgets and handle all that stuff while doing the creative and going to school. Well. So, you know, I'm a, I guess I'm just ADD. I, I do a lot of stuff. Right. But it was it was fun. When, and when it's fun, it's not really work. That's why I'm still doing
1: it. Uh, That's it's, really incredible. I'm, I, I want to w- what I want to explore a little bit is because just to think out there and a lot of our listeners, um, they are people who are who've made it already. And a lot of them are young people um, who were, you know, they would dream of being Fred Ashman. Um, and if you, it's interesting, as you explained to me, you know, how you got into the business, which is that you were already a musician and that entitled you were giving you an opportunity to learn about the production side of it, and how to, you know, and you were working with a sound first, you, you, you had a lot of interests and you, you basically, it looks like you were just incredibly multifaceted. So you had the interest and you pursued it. And it, it doesn't sound like you're a person who ever lets anything hold them back. You know, because most of us mere mortals, if we had, you know, the failures you had very early on, um, we would have just quit. Right. And I, I just, I want to hear because, you know, this is about the real story of entrepreneurs. And, I, and I'm fascinated about what made you keep going.
0: I, I wanted it. I, this is the life I wanted. And uh, a couple of things happened along that way. When uh, when I, I was facing going under early, my parents said, uh, "Well, we'll take a second on our house and and you know help you out." And I said, "Absolutely not." Right. So I said, "I'm young. I can recover. You guys, this is your nest egg. I wouldn't take. I will not take your money. I'd, I'd, rather, I'd if I have to do a VK, I will." But I'm not going to have to do that because I haven't got anything to, <laughs> there's no assets here anyhow. And I don't owe that much. It's just a, you know, a rent on, on the building as such. And then uh, this other company came along and uh, who, who was a client who, who liked me and they said, yeah, we'll pick you up. And, you know, because this is just going to be, a, you know, probably a six month deal until you're on your feet again. Right. And didn't, they were big and I was very little, so it didn't cost them much. It was dependence. And they got somebody to do their work in the meantime on the cheap. So it was a good deal. Uh, that kind of thing is, is the basis for everything else that goes on, is being, providing a service and a value and making it really easy for people to work with you. You have to understand what they need, and then you have to provide it and bring value to the table that hopefully your your competitors don't. And I would look at uh, other people's events or videos, and I would if they were really good, I would take notes on. I really love what they're doing here. I want to I want to be more like that. And if they were really bad, I say, oh man, here's an opportunity. Because mm-hmm. if I can get in the door, then I can get better. And the the other thing that was all part of this was all the way back when i was very young i had those goals and they were written and i hadn't even thought about them for years until i graduated high school and my mom saw where all this was going and pulled out some of the old things from junior high and showed me those and then here it was again and they were now embedded in the back of my mind and they just cemented what i wanted to do i I don't know what the psychology of that is but in my case it
1: worked that, that's that's incredible i mean there's some there's so much of what you just said in such a short time um first of all you got your reticular activating system going so you put you you know the, the part of you that where you want your goals to be the part of your brain um and it's it feeds your energy and it sounds like from a young age you did that because you set your goals you were you were starting to believe that you that you could do these things and you were looking actively for opportunities. And that's what it that's what it means when you have that in your in your reticular activating system. So you were open to these opportunities, even if it was in the back of your mind that you may have not have known, but it sounds like it was very much part of what you were doing, even if it was coming from your subconscious.
0: Yeah, absolutely true. And then all the other thing was I, I did a show called uh Welcome to San Diego. Uh, for the Convention Visitors Bureau, which was my very first client, big client. And through that, I ended up getting Western Airlines as a client before they were bought by Delta years ago. Right, And through that same show, that's how I started with American Airlines uh, that went on for 35 years. That's how I started with NCR that went on for 37 years and grew. And all of them grew. And the, the technology changes we went through were were completely everything you – Every piece of equipment you own is, is now obsolete. Get it all new. Right. And another five years, six years go by, get it all new. So one of the things I tell a lot of the younger people in, in my business, we're all excited about buying the most expensive camera they can. If I have that camera, then I'm going to get this business. Camera doesn't get you business. That's like having a good hammer or a great hammer. If you got a good hammer and you know how to use it, that's, No different than having a great hammer that costs twice as much and pounding the same nail. It's just a tool in your tool kit and they will be obsolete. And then you have to buy all new. So don't waste your money on something that you can rent when you're only using it 15 days a year or whatever it might be. And when the rentals of your real business that, you know, things you have booked, if the rental price, it, it is, you know, 50% or more of the cost of that item. And you're going to be able to keep that item for a couple of years, then buy it because you already have 50% of your investment coming back to you in, cause you're going to charge the client just as though you rented it. But instead of giving the rental money, the cash out, you're going to keep it inside and put it back into the bank account because that covers what you just spent doing it. So, It's just that kind of mindset that you have to have. And it's that business versus creative. And it's really left brain and right brain going back and forth. And the more you can utilize both uh, in my business, there's a bunch of people who can't. I'm brilliant creatively and idiots when it comes to business. I mean, really not, not, not good at all. Uh, But then there's a lot of people who can, at some level, and I had to get a CPA to be my number two in the company as soon as I could afford it because I'd screw up the books and I, I just told them from the beginning, keep my taxes so clean you can eat off of them. Uh, just, I, I don't wanna have that kind of problem and I know if I'm handling the books and everything else, I'll just be sloppy, I, I won't do it right because that's not what I, I do. And in fact, in our, in our home, I don't handle the money, my wife does. And uh, I I focus on this, but I do know how to do a contract. I do know how to uh, understand the system. And I guess I could do it, but that's not, that's no fun. What I do is a lot of fun. Right. I think that's the other thing. If you really love it, whether you love the law, whether you love uh, accounting, and there's people who really dig it, uh, and there's all these professions, if you love it, it's not nearly so much work as, as people might think. So the more you get into it and love what you're doing, the easier it is to work really hard because my wife even to this day says, if I get into my writing or I'm really working on something or an edit, I'll, I'll sit down at, you know, seven or eight in the morning and it's three in the afternoon. And I, I thought it was maybe 10 or 11. I had no idea. Just goes by. That's,
1: incredible. That's that sounds there's, I just want to unpack so much that you said that's valuable. Um, One of them is that we find, and I found over my career, that people who are really successful, um, they see work as play. They don't really see it as hard work because they're just so into it. They enjoy everything that they do and they can't wait to spend another moment uh, doing it. Picasso was the most prolific artist. He loved it. He did it all the time. And it's like that repetition makes you better and better, but it's also the fact that you have this just incredible interest in it um, what kept your interest, um, I mean, what keeps your interest so alive? Um, and and with respect to the writing and the producing, directing, is there an area that, that you relish more, or is, is going back and forth between one and another, um, what's of interest for you?
0: I get to play, I get to play in all the sandboxes I love most. I get to play in music. I've been able to use aviation in the business and it really helped me get Cessna aircraft, Learjet, Dassault Falcon, all his clients at one time or another, um, multi-year clients. Uh, On the airline side, I've gotten to fly uh, as co-pilot on Learjets shooting in IMAX for IMAX films and, and in 35 millimeter and I shot a whole lot of footage for American Airlines for their national commercials, air to air. Uh, Flying with some of the best pilots in the film business in the world Uh, the the captains who fly the real close formation stuff and then as co-pilot I have co-pilot duties But I'm also sitting up front looking at the monitor directing calling the moves for the other aircraft and and working with the uh, uh, Camera operator in the back because it's a separate there's a it's a team effort to do that kind of work but those kinds of things, I got to do that. The music side, we produced a ton of original musical material, and I think later you might be playing one of the videos with an original score that we did for the Air Force Memorial uh, video. And we did original scores for a lot of things. We did a show in Barcelona with a 50-piece live orchestra, which I conducted the evening show, and I had my dream team of Hollywood studio musicians Embedded with this orchestra, doing it's a rock orchestra kind of show, uh, with five really top singers uh, that we brought with us, and uh, so we did the business meeting, and the, the orchestra played for uh, walk-ons and everything else, and a couple of production numbers, but all within theme of what the whole theme of the meeting was for five thousand people from all over the world, and then that at night. On the closing night, we did a big entertainment show with playbacks uh, and uh, a couple of million dollars worth of original videos on the screens, all those kind of things. And we did a show like that all over the world, Rio de Janeiro, Hong Kong, uh, Sydney, um, uh, Europe uh, in Nice, France, uh, went to, uh, like I said, Rio de Janeiro. All, just all over, Hawaii, one every year, 37 years. Sometimes it was two a year because they do a domestic program and then an international program. So that was just NCR, plus all of the work for American all over the place. And the two IMAX films for America and on and on and on. And a lot of work that you never saw on broadcast at all. I did a million dollar doctor, documentary with uh, Royal Caribbean about how they build the big, biggest cruise ships in the world. And we figured that we'd make the money back by selling CDs uh, DVDs rather on, on the ships. And that's an, exactly what happened. But we thought, you know, it'd be good to get a little bit of exposure on TV with it too. And the discovery channel offered us 150,000, which is about what we expected for a three hours worth of programming, good, real good programming, won awards and everything else, original music score. Uh, and, uh, but they wanted all those uh, DVD rights. And they were adamant about it. And I said, well, this is over a million dollars worth of production. And you want to buy everything for 150000 They said, yeah. And I had two words. First was a verb, second was a pronoun. And we parted ways. But it was it was OK. And uh, over the next five years, we made all the money back, plus a lot more. And uh, It was, it was great. And we got that gig because of a referral, an executive from American airlines, who we knew very well, left and became the president of Royal Caribbean. And when he, he wanted to see a documentary done and was willing to partner on it, uh, for, for the cash. And, uh, so he called me and I said, well, I haven't ever done a documentary this big and like this. Uh, why'd you call me? He says, I've seen your work, I know you, I can trust you, and I figured that if you can do such great work over here for American, it's gotta translate into what we're doing. And it did, and it was, talk about fun, and talk about a challenge budgeting. Budget for a project that's gonna take three years to get done. And you say, okay, you got a million dollars. Well, in Hollywood, that's a 60 second commercial. And we did three hours worth of it, and we made money on it so it was it was a just a fun fun thing to do
1: i just it's really fascinating for me but i feel like i'm trying to control a fire hose here (laughs) you have so many different interests there's so much that you've done and there's so much that you do i mean it's 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 uh you know if i had to try to give a cookbook to somebody about you know how you could be fred ashman i think that's pretty much we've established that's impossible but if you're if, it's not if, impossible. Yeah. I'm going to stop you there. I think that people can do exactly,
0: and there are people doing what I've done, but they're small. They're not really, really big. We, we beat out big, big competitors for years uh, with, with what we were able to deliver and the relationships, the personal relationships we built with the, uh, the people who hired
1: us and the executives. Uh, and there's relationship many, many based examples on a trust of trust be established i'm sorry to interrupt you is is based on a trust you established right as you mentioned uh, to me many times that it's that building that trust and having um, having that kind of rapport and and building your reputation as being an honest broker and th- keeping things fair is so core and key and here i'm talking to a world class writer director producer um that everyone's going to think of as a creative and you're giving me the best business advice.
0: Well, thank you. Well, I I got that because my mentors were great business people. And we had some uh, big clients that we resigned over, things like they don't pay their bills, uh, and they string you out, and because their accounts payable department makes their bonus on how long, in the words of one vice president at Chevrolet, how long we screw over our small vendors on the cash flow and i said i can't work for you he says yeah we get somebody good like you guys and we don't hold them very long because they move on because uh paying the bills is out of my control it goes over to finance and they don't care that happened and i'm going and i don't mind saying who it was because it's true uh it was a long time ago they're probably the same people probably aren't there maybe they changed their ways mm-hmm. but i'll tell you what i would never buy a product from them <laughs> because they couldn't be trusted to just pay and a small company that kind of thing on cash flow can absolutely break you. And one of the reasons I had to get a, an accounting guy in early is I didn't understand cash flow. I didn't know what it meant to depreciate an asset. I didn't know any of that stuff. I wish I'd had it in college. I wish I'd taken a class in that. I did take an introduction to law class as my own elective in college, and it was one of the best classes I ever took. Uh, it quickly got you know, to where I knew I didn't wanna be a lawyer because that wasn't my passion, but it really was helpful to know some of this stuff. And I would say to any young person, if you haven't had, go to a junior college and take a basic accounting class and understand just some of the real basic stuff that I didn't know I had to hire, my own guy internally, and I was using outside accounting firms before that, small ones, Uh, because when you're doing your business, you can't get mired into the weeds of that kind of pieces of it. You've got to get people you can trust, and you've got to have people you can trust so that the taxes don't come back and bite you, because they can bite you hard if you don't do it right.
1: Right. Right. I mean, that's, again, there's just so much to unpack there um, in terms of running the business and the cash flows. As you've already mentioned um, earlier in our discussion, the cash flow is important. You don't want um, young people who are getting into the business to spend all their money on the best production equipment. First of all, the technology changes. And secondly, you've got to be careful about cash flows, don't you?
0: Absolutely, because, well, for example, uh, our contracts had a deal where uh, we get, at the time of signing the paper, before we started work, we would get 50%. So you're always working on OPM, other people's money. Correct. You don't want to be at risk for your own money. And then you have to monitor your budget. And the creative, the, one of the things a lot of creative people do is they over, they under budget and overspend. And that will put you out of business very quickly. Uh, I mean, as simple as that, you can't sell something For less than would cost you to make it, you're not going to make any money. You cannot pay yourself. You will go under. Don't do that. This is so simple, but uh, creative people do it all the time,
1: and I've seen it. What is their their thought process? Is it that this will be so successful, I'll make ten times more money than this? Is that the thought process, or is it that you know you just don't have any focus on the business end of it? I think it's the latter. I, I just
0: think most of them really don't they think that they're going to be on budget when they start, and but they never leave enough money for the post-production. They underestimate because they want it to come in on a number. And uh, you you, can, you know, I've done that on a couple of them, and I took it in the shorts, but I fortunately was small things that I, we did early, and um, I learned my lessons and to not do that. And, and it, the bigger the budget, the easier it is to blow the budget because you think, "Oh, I've got plenty of money here." No, you don't, uh, because it's a big project, and you have to be able to look at that. Part of the, the one of the big jokes that and I use it with uh, young people when I talk to them sometimes is, "What does it take to make a uh, successful film? A really good a really good film or a commercial or?" or anything in this business to really do it right. What's it take? And they'll come up with, Oh, you got to have the right equipment. You got to do this and that and all the creative stuff. And then I said, no, 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 no matter what they say, I say no money. It takes money, lots and lots of money. And if you're doing something even halfway big, you will hemorrhage thousand dollar bills and you do if you're not careful. So, and I also tell them, if you don't see it on screen, try not to spend money on it. These small productions that finally get a, a little bit of a decent budget and they want to get star trailers and they want to do all this stuff, you know, like a, like a big Hollywood production, and they end up overspending and losing their shorts. Don't do it that way, because you can't see any of that on screen. Um, you know, do what, do what the minimum that you need to do to make it come run come off right and if you got a real star, which most of them can't afford to get to start with, uh, even when I did mine, I I didn't have any trailers and I had a whole lot of veteran actors on it and they were all fine with it because it wasn't a giant, they knew it wasn't a Hollywood feature, but it was a feature, it was a multi-million dollar feature. And, but they also had fun working on the set and they said that the difference in the way our set ran was so much more fun than a lot of the Hollywood sets where it's like, you know, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot at stake. And there's, there's people who are pretty tough up there. And uh, part of the reason I chose not to make my career in Hollywood.
1: That's incredible. I mean, again, it's... The There's a certain amount of pragmatism in what you're saying, which is which is incredibly important. And anybody who thinks of, of people who are creative isn't thinking, okay, I better think about budgeting. A lot of people in politics say the same thing. Unless if you have the dollar bills or you can get it, don't think about running for office. And in so many different uh, avenues, it's really that story. And when there is more money, there's more responsibility, um, at, at least to shareholders, et cetera, then you got to worry. And, you know, I, have noticed that, um, a lot of people who are really successful in their fields, like for example, writers, it used, to, they used to say that if you want to be a good writer, you should be writing every day. Right. Instead of, you know, cause a lot, you know, and I see this in my own profession, you know, as you know, I do business and IP, um, law and, Uh, Many times when you think of someone who is an inventor, everyone thinks of a a flash of light bulb, you know, light bulb went off in their head and it was a flash of genius. Okay. And what really happens is they tend to be people who are working in a particular profession and they see this opportunity um, and they say, well, this is, this is incredible. Um, You know, let me change things. Maybe there's a problem that needs to be solved. You'd be surprised how many people with this, this terrible pandemic the coronavirus are calling us about inventions for that problem you know be they in the life sciences or be they with respect to you know how to keep in different kinds of um, sterile environments for people now that we have a new dynamic so entrepreneurs tend to be from my experience the types of people who see problems and they want to solve them and you said so much about that in in what you've told me today you know you saw you, you, for example, I am sitting here. I'm very interested in how did you get into all these different areas of production? Like, what made you think of going into the commercial side? You know, well, in, how did in, you see in, the opportunity? Yeah, when we
0: say the commercial side for me, it means industrials, uh, Industrial. which are often thought of as training videos. Well, I didn't want to do training videos because if you you look at those, that's the bottom of the market in terms of budgets. So you can't do the really cool stuff and it's, and it's fairly boring content uh, and they don't have the budget. So you, you wanna do something that's more towards the commercials, but the, the, the agencies control all the creative in the commercials. Uh, you know, they the get some good directors who will really put some pizzazz on it and work on it. And there's some very wonderful creative people, but the agency itself has the client, has the control of that, and then you're, you're a work-for-hire to put their ideas and such together. Uh, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to create stuff myself, and, but for a purpose. And it's all measured by the audience. Uh, and that's what I, I wrote a book called Advocate for the Audience about how I did all this stuff. It's really a lot of these stories and a lot more combined into how do you understand and reach that audience? Um, and it's a lot about understanding what they want and you want to take them someplace they couldn't go. You want to show them something they really find fascinating or interesting, and you want to do it in a way that touches them both intellectually and in the heart, emotionally. In that way, if you've done that, it will reach that audience and get their expected result. And it can be, uh, just a change of feeling. It can be entertainment. It can be uh, for a cause. I've done some charitable work that really opened the floodgates of some tears and brought out millions of dollars for certain, some certain charities like, uh, the, uh, cystic fibrosis foundation and, uh, the Komen foundation, I did work for both of them, but it was through one of my clients, but we did it, uh, for cost, uh, hard cost. We donated all the rest of it. And. I think the the whole point is that as you go through this and you're looking at these, whoever your audience is, if you're making a pitch, that's an audience of one or two. Uh, You have to make sure you understand what it is they need at the very beginning. So you get a goal set and you say, and then you have to negotiate sometimes the goal because the goal may be unrealistic. I, I can't tell you how many times I've said, I will not take your money because a video will not do what you want it to do. This is, and it's not, this is in your environment, not a standalone piece. It's gotta have other things with it. And this is the thing that tells the big picture. And then that sets the stage for you to bring it home and and bring your, your message and your story to them. And we will tell the big story in a way that's really cool. But it doesn't stand alone. I won't take your money if I can't achieve what you want achieved. But here's how I think you can achieve it. So you're, again, a problem solver, just as you were saying.
1: So, so um, Fred, how did you let, – let's just step back for a moment. What gave you the idea to explore this avenue as a business? And and what made you, did you, and what made you think that, that you could do it or, or even to get in? It sounds like like you were sort of creating your own opportunity here. I just want to just sort of step back on that. It
0: never occurred to me that I couldn't.
1: So it, it's, has that been like that your whole life? It seems like you don't take any failures or challenges seriously. <laughs> it's like you just move on to the next thing. You have interest. I, I took them very seriously. How can you do that? It's amazing to me.
0: Well, um, yeah, I take them very seriously. And uh, I still have nightmares about some of stuff. This- <laughs> so you do take it seriously. And I go, oh, you overcome it, why, right? did I, why did I put the wrong people in charge? Why did I do this? Why did I do that? Uh, matter of fact, when I was in the middle of uh, some of the bigger productions that I was, had two hats on, one was the producer side, which is both creative and money, and the other side was the director that's really focused on the creative. And she caught me actually having a verbal argument in the mirror in the bathroom in the morning. And she came back, she waited till I was finished, and she said, well, who won, the producer or the director? And I said, frickin' producer did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have that tug and pull within you because you have to. You have to because you won't be successful. I mean, you're constantly challenging, is this right? Is that right? And then you try to get to, the areas you don't, aren't the best in, you hire the best, the best you can afford to help you. And you, uh, a lot of people are very dictatorial when they get this power of a director. Do You do this and do this, I want you to do this. And uh, I'd like to handle it the way Mike Gunn, uh, who was executive vice president of of American Airlines. And he, one time he was the head of marketing and he made his way all the way up through. And he was my boss for many of those years. But he taught me, says the words, you're in charge. Here's what it, we need to get done. Here's the resources that you have that we'll give you to do it. The money, the budget usually, and then any cooperation you need. We'll give you airplanes and you can get on the ramps and do all the stuff. Uh, we'll give you a li- liaison, but here's your budget. Here's what we want to do. You know this audience. By then, I knew the audience. He says, you know the audience better than anybody we've ever used. That's why we keep coming to you. You're in charge. Make it happen. And I like to do that with good creative people. I did it on the scout yesterday with the uh, set uh, decorator. But we're looking at locations for this drama. I'm, I'm just a director on it. I'm not the producer or anything else. I was hired to come direct a couple of episodes of a, of a, of a new show. And the, there's two directors, which one is doing the first two episodes and me. And the first director was giving her very specific, I want this on this wall and this kind of thing. And uh, when she came to my, my, I'm doing the second two episodes. This other guy's a very good director. We just have different styles. And uh, she was taking all these notes and then I, she says, what do you want on this wall, on this wall? I said, what do you think we should, here's the, what we're trying to create. Here's the atmosphere of this room with this teenage kid and how are you gonna decorate it? And he's into this, he's into this, and we're talking about it. I said, maybe you put a surfboard somewhere. Where do you want it? He said, well, I'm going to shoot it this way and I'm going to shoot it this way. Here are, with the cameras, you hear it, look at it. Here are the angles I'm going to shoot. I've got to have something there, something there, something there. You decide, you're the set director, decorator. I'm counting on you to make it great, better than I would have done. And
1: you're and you and you're giving the responsibility to them and they feel, they 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 want to satisfy what you've asked of them, but they also feel like that you have some confidence in them as the general uh, essentially, right?
0: And I absolutely do, because I don't want to cloud my, there's there's other people like this other director, he's really good and he's doing the pilot in the first one. So he's setting some of the tone that I'm going to follow in terms of the way I shoot the thing and the way the lighting director lights it so it'll have similar looks. We're going back into some of the same locations that he already shot to continue a scene that he started shooting. So I've got to make sure that I see what he did and not have it so different that it it's jarring to somebody who's looking at episode one two three four five and uh so i'm gonna take my there's a lot of cues from him but on the other hand i'm gonna the way i get there may be a little bit different and uh, we're both uh, have a great deal of respect for one another um he's done a lot more drama than i have and uh so it's just a different way of getting there, but we're headed for the same goal with the same audience, and that's. But I like to uh, really charge people with giving them that authority, giving them a responsibility, giving them the scope, and then being able to follow up to make sure that it's it's done. And anything that in this case, I know what the what's going to be there already. And I know that the people can do it. So I'm going to count on them to do a little bit more than just what I want. Because if you, if you give them, do this this way, it, it, all of a sudden, they're not going to want to challenge you. You're the, you're the boss, you're in charge, do it this way. Well, I think we ought to, no, I said, do it this way. So guess what happens if it turns out wrong? They're going to get blamed anyway. and uh, they'll say, I did exactly what you told me to do. Well, you should have, you should have fixed it. Or, you know, and now all of a sudden it's, it's hostile and you never want to work with these people again. They don't want to work with you. Whereas I come around the other way and uh, give them the authority to do it. And if we need to change something we do and there's uh, no yelling, there's no necessary that. And I tell people at the beginning of a shoot and I know others who do the same thing and I, I know uh, Tom is this other director does the same thing too, is this is not brain surgery. If we screw something up, nobody dies. This is art and it's, you know, it's, it's a TV show or it's a film. And if we mess something up, we can do a second take. Right. So, so come on, let's, just, let's relax and, and do the, we're all in this because we love it. it doesn't have to be tense.
1: It's funny because I've heard of people um, who are directors, I've known some, that um, they have a vision in mind and it's got to be exactly what they were envisioning, which is very difficult to do in in the way that you do it. You're, you're giving, you're doling out responsibility. You're, in effect, giving every one of those people um, their own entrepreneurial um, bubbles. You know, well, yeah. they're all yeah. becoming uh, contributors to this project and you're going to be okay with some differences versus exactly the way you would have done it, which sounds, well, that, that in itself is, is is incredible.
0: Well, not really. I think that it's it's a good management style. Uh, now, on the other Great hand, management. I am a, I'm a I am a stickler okay. to, if it's not right, we've got to make it right. And if somebody that I counted on understanding and, and creating whatever it was that they were supposed to do and they miss, um, I probably won't call them back. And that's the other thing about this business. If if as a director or producer and you're doing team art, so you have to be a manager, a director absolutely has to be a good manager. Uh, And some manage uh, as other managers do by by terror, by some of these Hollywood directors, it's, you know, they just scare the hell out of you and, and they turn around and they'll just fire somebody off set like that. And sometimes it's just to get everybody else sharp. I mean, literally, it's that, it can get that cutthroat because I know some people who've been on sets in LA. And it's part of the reason I didn't ever want to work up there. Uh, uh, one real good assistant director who AD'd on, on the feature I shot uh, was he, doing the assistant director work on some big, big ones. And they, he just said the, the hostility and the, the tension. Uh, of working there all the time because at any moment, you can just get fired with the snap of a finger. You say the wrong thing, cross the wrong person, and it's it, it just different. And not every set's that way. I, I've heard of some really good sets and, and such up there. But uh, bottom line is, when, you, when you're working cooperatively with people, this is team art. So you wanna get good people and allow them to do their art, for you within the direction and the parameters you set up my experience has been most of the time it's the work that they've done has turned out better than if i had told them what to do because they come up with inventive things that i never thought of because i'm thinking about something else and for those directors who can get into every little tiny detail and do all that stuff bravo for them i'm not i'm not the guy who can do that
1: you're you're not the micromanager. You're giving them a lot more, um, let's say, um, stake in the game, um, creatively, and it sounds like they're delivering for you. And if they don't have that high quality, um, you know, you you have a reputation, and you're not going to want to work with them again. So they they realize that after this project, that'll be it if if they don't. So you keep the quality high, but it sounds like you don't micromanage them and. and the overall work product is is more interesting than, than if you thought of it yourself.
0: Yeah, I, I, like. I think I try, I try to do it that way. When we get on set and you're actually shooting, you can become a bit more of a micromanager, but I like to do the same thing with actors. Uh, there's I, I feel a director is doing his best work when he's not, quote, directing, but setting the stage in, I, I like to, equated to what I, I think would be a, a sports analogy with a football coach. If you're working with the pros, you uh, might work on some basics and such in practice and everything, but you're really refining these finely skilled people into working as a team and in executing a plan more than you're telling them, you got, you got to do this this way and such and such. They, they already have those skills. So you're, you're trying to get them to work together and make something happen. Orchestra conductor. You know, the greater the orchestra, the better they're just going to do it. And then you bring out some of the fine points to make it even better. The uh, director is like a coach. It you know, should be. But if you have to get very directive, and, I can, and I've worked with a lot of level of, of actors, and some of them are really not very good, uh, and some of them are very, very good. So you got to work with those performances and help them. And sometimes you find yourself in it more of a teaching and role. And sometimes you find yourself more in a coaching role. And sometimes you just get the hell out of the way and let them be great. Uh, working with James Garner and I got to work with uh, Jonathan Banks is wonderful. James B. Seeking, a, a lot of these veteran character actors, Kimberly Brown from the Soaps, uh, they are so terrific. You just set it up, write a good script, script is everything, and then let them go with it and get out of the way. And then if they do a performance, then you can go and say, well, make this a little more up. I, this part didn't work and you know, work with them on that. But this other was great. Can you give me a little more of this, a little less of that? And then they do it and you go, and they make it even better. They do something that you didn't even expect.
1: That's incredible. So that's, that's, those are, are excellent lessons. Um, I, 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 think I think that works in any business. It does. It does. And that, I mean, that kind of segues into what I want to talk about your, your book advocate for the um, audience. And it, it sounds like um, from the principles you're talking about, would it would be applicable to any successful business, not just in, in the creatives. And, and I, I, I'm just fascinated by your book.
0: There it is. Um, I'm kind of excited about it because it took me three years to, to make it happen. And, uh, three years of fine tuning. I really got to fine tune the art of procrastination. <laughs> I mean, it was the hardest thing I've ever done because I think, because I one I never written a book and I never really thought about the methods and techniques I've been doing. And my wife's a, uh, human resources person and a very excellent manager and understands human behavior a lot. And she also has been a management development person. So uh, with a couple of master's degrees in those fields and, and we got to talking about it and she says, well, you did this and this and this and has the correct terms for them. I said, well, what's, what's that? What are those? What does it mean? And she explained that, well, you did this and this, and that's, that's called such and such. And I, I never thought about it. I just didn't think about it because I was, I was using the techniques that were taught to me by really, really good bosses who were my clients, mm-hmm. guys like Mike Gunn, uh, at American and, and others. Uh, and, I just, the way they treated me was the way I found worked because it really allowed me to do my best work for them. And you always know that whatever job you do out of 37 years with some of these clients in a row, there were times when if if I knew at any point in time, you make a big mistake, a little one you can, you know, fix or everything doesn't have to be exactly perfect on a live event because things are gonna happen. But it's how you recover if there's something goes wrong. But it's also just del- consistently delivering something that works with the audience. That's why I call my book Advocate for the Audience. And that's why my focus is on that. And you might call it a- a Advocate for the consumer of my product. Uh, so I come at a kind of from, I guess, a marketing mindset. But those things, if you come at it that way, it really, really works. It really works and it helps you. But you're, no matter what happens, this could be your last gig. This could all be gone like that because there are literally dozens of very good competent companies beating at the doorsteps of all these clients. And they couldn't believe, how do you keep clients for so damn long? The big ones against all the competition in the nation, this little company in San Diego. People in San Diego didn't even know we were here, we were probably uh, one of, if not the biggest production company in town for the whole time, and they, a lot of people didn't know we were here, because we were doing all of our work other places, and we didn't get hardly any LA business, because they felt that, well, if you're a production company and you're not in LA, you're not anything. And <laughs> I even had one time we we got the Pitney Bowes account. I remember pitching the account and we got that account because an NCR guy, uh, Vice President left and was hired by Pitney Bowes. And he went to one of their big meetings and saw the videos and saw the way the production went and and told the guys, you got to call Multi-Image and Fred because they do a way better job than the people you have doing this. And when we went in to pitch them, one of the, there were three guys on the committee and one of the junior guys in the committee said, absolutely, told me right now, says, listen, I, I, I like to work with New York production companies, but ain't it New York, it ain't shit, period. That was it. And, and I said, well, you know, a lot of what you're doing is New York theater centric, but your audience is from all over the country. And if they're not into that New York theater style, then you're, you're not really connecting with them. And I said, we use a much broader approach to it and look at that audience and try to make sure that in the entertainment part, there's something for everybody. In the, uh, in the show itself, it's not a New York stage show with skips and then speeches. We try to integrate and, and bring message all the way through and with a lot of entertainment elements. And I think we can actually reach your audience more effectively. Uh, and the New York people... Will also like this. They like Vegas, and and they kept saying, "Well, you, your shows are more like a really good Vegas show than a."
1: And these are the business meetings. You understand? And it's, it's it's a. Are, are these are these marketing people? Or are they? Because it sounds like you're you're teaching to the marketing people. <laughs> because you're, when business. you say when you say advocate for the audience, Fred, it's uh, somebody might think um, when I first looked at the title of it, I'm, I thought, well. Well, yes, of course, you're always going to try to do something good for the audience. But when you've explained to me about this concept that, you know, you're really looking at it from the perspective of, if you're my client, I'm going to make sure that that you get the very maximum kind of a reach or understanding or, or love by your particular audience, which is going to give you more business and make you money, and you're going to want to work with me more. I mean, very much of a business focus there that I think is is sometimes lost in a lot of creatives.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And I've seen that we, uh, we had, uh, there's there's one young man who I had come in as a director in our, on our staff and I gave him uh, a video to do and he, and we're busy, We're running, I'm running all over the world, um, you know, doing this and that and directing and, and then coming back and writing. So I'm not a, a hands-on manager all the time. But in this case, it was a fairly small video to be used in one of the big NCR shows. And this is one of those clients that I've had forever. And he I told him not to do what he, he came up with the concept. I said, no, do, don't do it that way. Do it more this way. The concept you just presented, don't do it. Because I know it won't work. The client won't like it. And so I went away. And he spent the money. And he did it his way. And it was the first video. And jeopardized the at that point, 20 year relationship with that client. The first video they, they said, what is this piece of S-H-I-T? And they refused to run it. And uh, he got real defensive and I had to let him go. Wow. He'd, and he's since then is successful. Well, he maybe learned his lesson, uh, but- And or read your book, so. Well, I, the book wasn't done. This was, you know, 15 years ago. Okay. Uh, but the whole point is that uh, if you're the advocate for the audience, you understand who your audience is. Uh, and that's why there's some shows on TV that are successful, some are not. I mean, it's it's all over the board, uh, successes and not, and it's not just TV shows, look at products, look at how uh, a lawyer comes off with a client or with a jury or however you're negotiating, Who is your audience? Your audience might be the one person sitting across from you. One of the other things too is integrity and trust. Those two things are like this. And think about your own personal experience. If you want a dentist, do you go to the yellow pages? Or do you go to somebody and ask about a referral? Everything's a referral, so everything you've done even if you're not working for them anymore, the new person came in and just is going to use his new people no matter what. You're going to lose some clients along the way that way. We did a couple of times. But, uh, you know, sometimes after a five-year, six-year run, most of the clients were pretty long-term. But even then, if it, the people who are getting replaced will sometimes go someplace else and hire you or they'll refer you. Uh, And even to the new people, I've had a situation where the new guy came in, changed everything. We didn't do the huge show that year. That person, because the management had seen the quality of what we did, fired him. It cost them their career.